I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 78 for the month of May. I'm Duncan, and 1978 had its big hits like Superman, Grease, Jaws 2, Animal House, and Every Which Way But Loose. It had award winners like Midnight Express, California Suite, Heaven Can Wait, as well as Hollywood coming to terms with the Vietnam War, with the Somba Coming Home and Brutal the Deer Hunter. But 1978 also had some lower key ones that are worth checking out. The criminally forgotten Straight Time, starring Dustin Hoffman as a thief trying to go straight, based on the life of Eddie Bunker, who you might know as Mr. Blue in Reservoir Dogs. The seminal surfing film Big Wednesday. Wacky Goldie Horn Chevy Chase comedy Foul Play. The excellent The Driver. Paranoid NASA film Capricorn One. Do you remember that? Yeah, sure do. Yeah. Uh, the bleak and satirical Go Tell the Spartans with a great performance from Burt Lancaster. It's another Vietnam one. It's really interesting. Uh, the darkly sinister The Boys from Brazil, where Gregory Peck tries to resurrect the Third Reich. Love that film. The animated The Lord of the Rings. Terence Malick's Sumptuous Days of Heaven, which was shot solely during the magic hours of its undoubtedly long production. The duo of insane World War II films, The Wild Geese and Force 10 from Navarone. Uh, if you haven't seen either of those, check those out. They are uh, pretty uh, I've naturally seen both of those. Two legendary kung fu films, Jackie Chan's Drunken Master and the film from which Wu-Tang Clan took their inspiration, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, as well as the only non-Star Wars Mark Hamill film I ever saw as a kid, the car-themed coming-of-age comedy Corvette Summer. Oh, right. For some reason, I saw the big red one as well. Oh, right. Yeah, you know, the yeah. war film. Uh, yeah. Played on TV, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think... I have seen that, but it was a lot later. I probably shouldn't so. have as a kid. Yeah, it's pretty Sam Fuller one, that one. Yeah. And I know my illustrious co-host is about to uh, discuss some sublime horror films in 1978, um, but none of them were as, as horrific to me or more traumatising than the other film that was released in 1978, Watership Down. Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, that's great. That's one of my top five horror films of all time. <sighs> well, it was a kid's film, wasn't it? Sort, yeah. of, sort of, you know? Sort of, but then you yeah. watch it again now and it's like, man, this is bleak. Some dark stuff, eh? Yeah. Yeah, look, what a year for horror, which I realise I say a lot. But check this out. Halloween. Yep, the original. And the greatest modern zombie film, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, those two alone make 78 a banner year in scares, but we also get the excellent remake to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm-hmm. the Aussie cult classics Patrick and Long Weekend, and the notorious Mondo horror flick that taunted young Simon from the video shelves, and which I never got to see, and now has no desire to ever see, <laughs> Faces of Death. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, I've never seen that, but man, I remember seeing it in the video shelves and thinking, yeah. oh, what is, what is, what's that? What's, yeah, there was oh. a real thing, eh, in the 80s, yeah. was those kind of video nasties. Yeah, those, those kind of snuffy... Yeah. Films, eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but looking back, 78 seems to be the year of peak animal vengeance. Jaws returned and gave us, if nothing else, the outstanding tagline, just when you sort of thought it was safe to go back in the water. Wonderful. Piranha was a fun horror hit, but there was also the bees and a barracuda to worry about, <laughs> as well as the aforementioned long weekend, which turned all of nature against a pair of Aussie campers. And then, of course, there was our canine friends and devil dog hound of hell, and Zoltan, Hound of Dracula, same year, <laughs> wow. uh, which I spoke about in previous podcasts. Not to mention Ravens picking everyone's eyes out in the Omen sequel, Damien Omen 2. Yeah. Yeah. 
but, but, but of course I'm saving my pick from 78 to last. And that pick is Martin, a kitchen sink style drama about a young man who believes he's a vampire. And hey, maybe he is. Martin is an extraordinary little gem that deconstructs vampire films for a generation of drug addiction and urban alienation. Martin himself has florid dreams in black and white of seducing his lovely victims before draining their blood. But the reality of his crimes are often awkward and tortuous. It's a minor masterpiece and criminally unseen, and it's a George A. Romero film. Uh, one, he's, one he considered one of his best, and uh, I agree. It's released in the same year as Dawn of the Dead, so like I said, 78 was a great year for horror, but what a great year to be Romero. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, that's good. what a double hit. Yeah, yeah. there was a lot of uh, good good horror films here. I was quite struck at how many of them were like truly great. Like yep. Say. Yep, yep. I mean, Halloween and Dawn of the Dead straight away. Is yeah, like, in one year. In one year is pretty much the film that invented the modern slasher, really, with yep. Halloween, and then the... Like say the pinnacle certainly for me and for, for oh, most zombie people, films, I think, yeah, yeah, as Dawn of the Dead, yeah, yeah. So yeah, terrific. Yeah, agreed. So Duncan, what have you been watching? Well, I watched a few films, but Simon, we need to talk about us. Uh, Jordan Peele's sophomore effort is a slow burner that takes its time getting to significantly more carnage than his debut delivered. Us dispenses with the awkwardness of Get Out and ramps up both the laughs in the first half and the violence in the second half. Peel is a rare talent. Being a gifted comedian, the laughs come naturally. And even if the humour occasionally overlaps too much with the scares, what makes us work is that Peel commits to the horror. The opening is especially focused on suspense, and even the credits sequence has a stark, austere feel to it. Almost kind of like a Kubrickian kind of opening. So it's a familiar relief to be introduced to a loving, fun family who you want to root for. Lupita Nyong'o is predictably perfect, especially in expressing her character's inner turmoil, and Winston Duke, a comedic revelation in a role that looks like it could be based on the auteur filmmaker himself. Perhaps most surprising is that for a horror movie, Us doesn't have cruelty at its heart. It doesn't wish to revel in torturous violence, nor does it have the stomach to brutalise its innocence. While Us continues Get Out's thematic criticism of America, it doesn't contain that film's narrative laser focus, so despite all of the great work in the first two-thirds, it can't seem to nail the final third and instead wades into heavy exposition. That means it's allegorically satisfying, but not necessarily narratively satisfying. Um, but I really enjoyed this film, and it's one that stuck with me for a long time. And yep. many days afterwards, kind of talking to people about it as well, going, oh, what about this, what about that? And just thinking about it a lot. And sure. again, as we said before, a lot to be said for um, a film that does it, and especially a horror film. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think the thing that surprised me most about when I saw it was it was funny. Like yeah. if you'd seen the trailer, and the trailer's great, but it doesn't give a hint of what an amusing film it is. Yeah. You know, what a sly, entertaining um, mm. film it is with some real genuine laughs. Yeah, I, th- um, I thought it was played kind of quite, um, kind of more straightforwardly comedic than Get Out was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'd describe this as like a comedy horror in that old school way that we had a lot of them back in the 80s. Yeah. And I wouldn't have suspected that going into it. Right, yeah. Um, and I agree with you. I don't think it's... I don't think it's quite Get Out, which is no. something really special, but it's really good as well. And Lupita yeah. Nyong'o's performance is oh, just outstanding. She's amazing, yeah. She's really and, good. And, I, and I did this thing where I looked at her up on IMDb, and between winning an Oscar um, and this film, I think she'd only done two live-action roles. Right. Like she voiced a few characters, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, but there was a film that – and one of those films I'm pretty certain she had shot before um, – you know, 12 Years Slave and it got released. 
she's underused, man. Mm. She's amazing. Yeah. You know, and I just don't know why she's not working more. Yeah, I mean, it's got so many filmic references, you know, cinematic references in it. Um, some it wears quite brazenly, and and others are a little bit more subtle. And so, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it's really enjoyed it, and uh, recommend everyone check it out. Um, but maybe actually made me really excited to see whatever Jordan Peele does next. Uh, I know he's doing the Twilight Zone TV series, but I feel like he's yeah. more in producer capacity, kind of. Yeah, I think so too. You know, yeah, yeah, seeing it through, but this him writing and directing and producing this, um, it just made me really excited for whatever he does next. And what have you been watching? Uh, well, like you, I saw a lot, but I feel I have to talk about Avengers Endgame, okay. obviously. Um, the return of the Jedi to Infinity Wars, Empire Strikes Back, which means lighter, jokier, and more crowd-pleasing, despite having some major deaths. Well, until the undeadening, I guess. Uh, please, no. And of course, like Jedi, it's just not as good. Uh, in part, I guess that's because I like the serious downer of a film. Uh, over the heroic success of the finale in the series. But I also think Infinity War was just a better film. Um, that's mostly borne out in the last third, where the action lacks the clarity and the quality. And although the crowd were very obviously into it, I mean, mm. whooping in all the right places, it all felt less rounded. I don't like to say lazy, because I'm sure no one in these films is half-assing it, you know. Mm. But perhaps fatigue or just the crushing workload of a three-hour blockbuster starring everyone in Hollywood not contracted to DC or a Star War, just got a bit much. You know, maybe it just all got a bit... That could explain how what looked like a grim, dark background from a DC film got ported across into the final set piece of Endgame, giving it the same sludgy aesthetic as the end of Wonder Woman. I miss also the well-rounded villain of Thanos, who here becomes a more recognisable sort of villain, one we've seen before, the evil conqueror, who is also just a brawling juggernaut as well. Thanos was one of the great pleasant surprises, I thought, of Infinity War. Mm -hmm. And here he's undone a little. And I guess that's because this is the hero's film, not his. But there's just so many damn heroes that no one really becomes a standout. Uh, Captain America is once again a really good character. Thor is funny, but they push that humour hard. Mm -hmm. uh, and for too long for me. And Iron Man gets a decentish arc. It's all fine, it really is. It's um, good even, and the audience are clearly eating this up. It pays off on a lot of the great work done by earlier films, and the cast list is eye-watering. Like, I remember talking about Infinity War and saying there will never be a film with a cast like this. It's like, well, there is now. Mm. I mean, this film has an even deeper cast. Right. It's insanity. But it's just not the home run you might be hoping for, I think. And honestly, I don't know how it could have been. And maybe, and it appears to me that nobody's going to care. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and maybe the problem is that Infinity War was just as as good as it is mm. and it's surprisingly good i think that yeah. it's it's a hard bar to reach twice in a row you know yeah i mean i think not having seen it i, I can imagine what you're talking about like that idea of fatigue i think uh rings true for me anyway just from your description it's a viewer well uh, <laughs> yeah as a viewer but but uh no not even being facetious as a viewer not even being sarcastic like that i mean i mean for the for the actors involved someone like chris evans or how many more times no, are you going to are you going to throw yourself around and uh, and do essentially the same thing? Well, the every... directors as well. I mean, how many yeah. of these fights can you stage and you know That's right. and, and make them new and interesting and and, yeah. and and have character work going on amongst them? You know, yeah, yeah. It must be a difficult thing to kind of keep going back because no matter um, what you, no matter what the screenwriters do or how invested you you. You are in the character. There's a, there is a it's a finite resource. There's only so much you can do with that character. Yeah. Um. Until it feels like you're either repeating yourself or you're not saying anything at all. Yeah. Um. And you're not you're not moving forward. Um, yeah. So yeah, because I've been doing this for a long time now. 
all of them. Yeah, so. absolutely. And yeah. you know, um, we're not getting into spoilers, even though you know apparently the spoiler, the spoiler period is over, right, and we can yeah. start. We're not going to do it, but clearly, everyone knows there's a couple of characters here who are not going to be going forward with those characters, mm. right. and that's probably a good thing. I mean, it allows it to freshen up, but it also has that sense of like, ah, but who's now going to be, mm. you know, the A players in this, and and how confident are we for that second generation? Yeah, you know? it's going to be like a. Uh, Finn and uh, Rose and um, yeah. Dameron Poe. Yeah, and, I, and I'm guessing there are plenty of people who are fine with that as being the future of Star Wars. But yeah. for me, it's like a little bit, oh, gosh, really? Yeah. And, 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 and maybe that's what's going to happen here as well. I don't know. Now, I thought I already done told y'all to get off my property, okay? So if y'all want to get crazy, we can get crazy. Now, the cops are already on their way. And welcome to No Comps. So this is the part where we go and watch a uh, film that's in a new release and come back and review it for you. And so this month it's uh, Pet Cemetery, starring Jason Clark, Amy Simons, and John Lithgow, written by Matt Greenberg and Jeff Bueller, and directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Wildmeyer. A big city doctor and his wife move to a small town with their young daughter and infant son. When their family cat is killed, the next-door neighbour shows the doctor where to bury the cat in the pet cemetery beyond his property line. The next morning, the cat returns to the family house. All right. Look, famously, King considered Pet Cemetery as the book that scared him the most. Certainly his novel in the 89 film adaptation by Mary Lambert are dark and tragic stories, taking the idea of the monkey's paw to its horrific natural, or unnatural, conclusions. I love the story of Pet Cemetery. For me, it's like a horror juggernaut, so focused, so unrelentingly grim, so sure of its own ability to terrify that it's, for me, one of the best King stories. Uh, the 89 film was full of flaws. The cast was probably not entirely out for it, uh, except for one exception. But it's effective. It hits the horror beats with gusto and doesn't try to break what's not broken. And I can't say the same for the remake. Mm. Interesting. Look, I can still remember watching the original 1989 adaptation with my cousins when I was visiting Wellington oh. on a, kind of like a stormy, rainy night. Yeah, lovely. Video story and got it out. The film was gory, uh, but I didn't find it nerve shredding. But the concept was creepy, and I yeah, always man. remember that. And the most striking character was the ghoulish spectral presence acting as a guardian angel, reminiscent of Griffin Dunn's decomposing Greek chorus role in an American Werewolf in London. Oh man, that's a great reference. Yeah, yeah. absolutely that. Absolutely that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like kind of who should be on the, on the surface of it, um, the creepiest, most disturbing character is in some ways the most moral. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah, the one that's looking out for everyone the most, yeah, eh? that's right. The one that's kind of clear-eyed and, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, uh, this is going to sound, I'm, I'm going to be the first person to ever to do this, but the film I was a reminder of most while watching this Pet Cemetery was the 2011 rom-com Crazy Stupid Love. <laughs> and it's because, it's because in both these films, I found myself initially loving what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. Like I was certain I would be going to work the next day and going, hey, everyone, you've got to see this film. And then gradually I had this kind of sinking feeling as things changed and I realised the films had kind of blown it for me. Mm -hmm. Like I started out with Pet Cemetery actually reasonably, you know, mm -hmm. good hopes for it all. Um, but there's a twist, and in both cases of the films, mm. uh, Crazy Stupid Love as well, there's a twist which kind of uh, just hurts the film and I don't think it recovers. Right. I don't know if we want to go into the spoiler. Or, I, or, I think we can. Oh, we can? Well, if you feel if you feel up to it. Right, so... um, well, Everyone, we're going to spoil it, so if you don't want to hear yep. this, then okay. prob probably skip this part. Right, so in the original, um, he's got a, a son called G uh, Gage and a daughter called Ellie, 
mm-hmm. and Gage, the, the, the small boy, is killed and he buries Gage in the pet cemetery and he comes back. Mm-hmm. And this film, they flip that. They, they, they hint that that might happen, but it's Ali who dies. Mm. And Ali who gets buried in the pet cemetery and Ali who comes back. Mm. And I just don't think it works. You don't? No. Right. No. And it, um, um, yeah, again, like I said, I didn't want to really get into the spoiler, but while we're there, there's something scary about Gage as a villain because he's car-formed embryonic terror as opposed to an older child. I, and I can see the thinking because an older child uh, potentially a better performer and, and mm. Ellie as a girl is a better performer. But when she comes back... You know, she can have co- she can have reason and conversations while twirling around in her grave, dirty dress, and all of that. But it's just I don't know. It adds duration, I guess, because there's this whole trying to set up a family mm. when one of them's a zombie, essentially. Yeah. But the audience I was sitting in found it funny. Right. And um, you know that half closed eye she mm. had. Ah, it didn't work. It, 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 this it is got interesting. Giggles in my audience. I, I'm glad that we're talking about this because I actually really liked this part. And oh, this right. was the part. Yeah. Because um, the original film has two truly memorable moments: the first to do with the truck, and the second with the scalpel. And the 2019 version is to be applauded for recognizing both. The first flips it on its head beautifully. The second, it does a good job of sidestepping for a mere seconds before hammering home the same effect with the scalpel. Like they basically sidestep it and then bring it back anyway. So it's like, oh, that's interesting. That mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of referenced it. Um, but I actually thought that the film has two performances that help raise it. And one I thought was the seasoned veteran John Lithgow commits to his role and brings an inviting openness to a man carrying dark knowledge. But I thought it was Jeet Lawrence's performance, especially in the second half, which I thought ignited the screen, because perhaps even more impressive, because the creepy second half makes you realise how intentionally affected her sweetly pitched first half performance was. Because I kind of found her, when in the as a character in the, in the beginning, I kind of found her almost like a bit too, um, a bit too sweet, a bit too nice, you know mm. what I mean? Uh, almost a bit too want of a better term, childish for how old she was supposed to be, like kind of afraid of the dark and all the rest of it. I thought she should have kind of gone beyond that. Um, but in the second half, she, I, I just didn't expect that performance from her. Right. And I think that I actually enjoyed that. And I found that nice and creepy and weird and unnerving. Like I didn't expect the film to go down the route. And I think the film's doing it with a tongue in cheek and it's doing it knowingly mm. that this is weird and like her – him lying next to her on the bed and all that kind of stuff and just telling her to go to sleep. I loved all of that because he was like, just the idea of him like, look, you know, now you just go to sleep. Right, right. Like, I've, I've had a long day digging you out of a grave or digging up a grave for yeah, you. Yeah, and to bury you. And yeah, then, to yeah, bury yeah. you and then put you back. You know, he just kind of like, he was like, okay, I've done everything now. Now you're back to normal. Right. And it was clear that it wasn't going to work. You know what I mean? Like, but he's trying to pretend that everything's going to be fine. Um, no, I actually, yeah, I quite enjoyed that part. It was wow, the okay. third act that was awful for me. Right. And that's where it all fell apart because I kind of felt like you don't know what to do with this now. You have no idea where to go with this film. No. And you and have you have no kind of, yeah, you have no character arc left to go, really. Yeah. Look, I performance-wise, I like I like Jason Clark. He has a, the sad-eyed solemnity, which I think is really good. And Amy Simmons, Rachel, is so far away and better than what Dennis... Denise Crosby was doing the original. Mm. Man, I mean, that was shaky. Um, I like Lithgow, but f- what Fred Gwynn did in mm. the original is, like, iconic. And yeah. the way he got that main accent, mm-hmm. it just was so rich and fruity. And, and I don't yeah. think Lithgow quite gets that. He feels right. like he's taken out and put into that, but I don't really buy him as that right, in okay. that world. Although 
I love him. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Oh, I know what you mean. It, it's yeah. just maybe a little too against type for me, and I don't right. really buy him as like a backwards kind of main right. local who's lived there forever. Ah, um, I kind of like him. Yeah, I, I, I just yeah, it's interesting because I, I, again, I've just gone to those two, and I, I think that they were the. Uh, he he particularly was the most inviting character out of any of them. I kind of felt that an arm's length from um, the two two leads. A right. Bit. I thought that the second act is the strongest of the film for me because delivering some moments you don't normally expect in a mainstream horror film. Uh, it's where the character and the narrative meets unusually well. It's, it's kind of what I was getting at is it, it's situationally creepy and unnerving, uh, which makes the descent into jump scares and gore in the third act predictable and unsatisfying for me. Yeah, look, what bugged me about that is that there are there's some additions I'm not really comfortable with. Both King and Lambert's version had a ghost character. So there's definitely some supernatural... I mean, you, you touched mm. on it. It's a really effective part of the original. Mm. And so there's some supernatural otherworldly elements to the tale besides, you know, reanimated corpses. Mm. But this version doubles down adding freaky dream sequences that made me think I was watching like a second-rate J-horror. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It got into this weird space yeah. where I, it was trying to make you doubt whether you knew what was real and what wasn't. And I don't know if that belonged here. It's not the Conjuring universe, you yeah. know? It's a, it's a tale about bodies coming back to life. And I, and yeah. I felt that was in like felt ported in from a different film it, yeah you know and so it, it it made me confused i was like well is she dreaming right now is this is this some ghost mm. thing happening yeah and I, I don't i think it was unnecessarily complicated and, and confusing yeah no i i think so as well and the film has leaps in logic that are just far too convenient like why would a grief-stricken mother decide to seek refuge from her new creepy house in the traumatizing house from her childhood that she dreads alone no less like For no one's sure. there, and you're just like, uh, haven't we just spent the last like hour seeing how you the had root of all your yeah, yeah yeah that made me dislike the character for putting herself in that situation where it was somewhere she yeah did. yeah and the mother's past it doesn't serve anything other than being an endless jump scare resource as well like there doesn't seem to be any real particular well that's why I kind of hated it and that that part of it because like you say it was just it felt like it was used to create m- some tension and some scares that. The film wasn't finding in other ways. Yeah. And that felt forced and it felt kind of, uh, I felt tracked, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. I just, I didn't see what point her past trauma brought in. And I haven't read the original, so I'm not too sure, you know. Yeah, right. But sure. I didn't see any narr- like any kind of narrative or character building there it, like visually it was just a jump scare resource as they yeah. say it was just that's i it. mean i know we've talked about this before but um i i read king's original script mm. for, for the 89 version yeah. so and one of the things i loved about it is it was a page turner it had yeah. such momentum it was a just an, like i think i described it as an elevator going straight down mm. and i feel like this kind of botches that by yeah. fluffing around and adding details like that, like in the third act like you say mm. which ruins the momentum it should be a real yeah. A ripper. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Uh, like recent horror standouts, The Invitation and Hereditary, Pet Cemetery has a theme that could deliver a truly great film grief and guilt consuming a person until they destroy their own family. But this Pet Cemetery doesn't so much lose its nerve as not seem to know where to locate its nerve in the finale. It's a disappointing end to a film that still has a fantastic premise re- remaining. Buried deep within, if you pardon right. the pun. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's good. Look, I, I also the look of it bothered me a little bit. It mm-hmm. felt a little bit too polished, you know. The cat is—I know it's a small thing, but it's never quite freaky enough for me. Yeah, no, you I know. Agree. Um, the walk to the haunted cemetery looks a little bit too t- 
touched by the CGI brush. Yeah. Um, to feel real enough to, to be scary enough for me. And the rest of it looks a little a little too pretty. I felt like it needed something that sheen wiped off and some disreputable grubbiness kind of pushed into it. Yeah. Um, I I, I, lo- I love the place where they go. They just when they're first taking the cat out of this pinch. It's like it's it's like it feels like the two towers or something. Like you're just crossing across, you know, the Mordor basically to get yeah. the. I was like, man, this is where is this place? Yeah, it's just taking hours and hours oh. to walk to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then later on, they just accelerate it all with, oh, well, we managed to take them and bury them, and then oh, because like, they're going back and forward all the time. By yeah, the end of the film, they at the end of the film they knock the father out with the spade to the head, and in the time it's taken him to kind of yeah. come to, they managed to. A young girl has managed to drag another Look, human see, body all the way up to the other top. Other problem and the I had with, with with the young girls, I don't get a sense, and it's to be fair, to, it's been a long time since I watched the original, but I don't get a sense that the child is somehow greatly powerful by dying and coming back. No. Whereas I found it hard to suspend my disbelief when she's having wrestling matches with people mm. and she seems as strong as yeah. the adults, you know? Yeah. It just didn't feel right to me, and I, yeah. I found it an unconvincing threat. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I was a little more disappointed than you. I, I and I, yeah. I think well, what I mean is, I think my disappointment came sooner than yours, by the sound of things. Yeah, the the part where I fell off was a bit, a little bit earlier than yeah, perhaps th- than you. Yeah, I, I just thought that that was an interesting. I hadn't really seen that, like saying what I consider a mainstream, straightforward horror film. Yeah, uh, to go down this weird idea of a zombie who could talk. And I hadn't necessarily seen that before. And I knew from the original Pet Cemetery, well, it just turns into this kind of zombified child who's going around. You know what I mean? Like it becomes... Yeah, um, like, Gage talks in that, in that. Right, yeah. A child who's reasoning and, and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I enjoyed yeah. that. And um, yeah, and I was just surprised at that performance because I did not expect it from that right. actor. Uh, and to see what they were capable of. I also think that the part where they turn that around on its head, that twist that happens, is done very well. The visually, I, it's I, really, really good. I gotta say, I don't disagree with that. Like, yeah, I, I'm not like I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, they changed it, so I hate it. Um, because I thought that was really well done as well. That yeah. whole truck accident was um beautifully shot. Yeah, but I, but I can't ignore the fact that the audience seemed to be finding it comical. Yeah. Like not scary, just but it, kind of but, laughable. But, but, don't, but, don't, but don't you think that it is? Like I think that they, inten- I think the filmmakers intentionally made those scenes weirdly uncomfortable, and I think that that yeah. laughter comes mm. from people being. Certainly, in my cinema, it was more like a la- I felt. Maybe it's my interpretation, but I certainly felt like this is weirdly uncomfortable in a in a in a, in a, in a situation where you're like, how do you get out of this? Look at look at what you've done. That was not. I don't sense it. It was the laughter right. I was hearing in my audience. Like I know what you mean. I mean, early yeah. on there were those, the giggles of um, tension release, and you yeah. know those those like oh you know, we have a laugh afterwards to yeah. reassure yourself. But as it got closer to the end, I felt those laughs were more just like, yeah. Well, which part close to the end though? Like oh, pretty much when you saw her with that. Um, that that eye, you know, she had this right. um, droopy eye and, yeah. and that makeup, and people were just weren't buying it. Right. Okay. But I felt disappointed in that in that when she did start attacking people because I was just like, this is just this is nothing original. It's nothing I haven't seen. It's mm. kind of, um, none of it's done with any particular um, attention or uh, inventiveness or anything. And then you get to the end of it, and again, without destroying the end for people, <laughs> we've talked through mm-hmm. a lot of it, there was nothing particularly scary at the end of it. 
Yeah. Right. Um, well, I guess I'd like to say in closing, mm-hmm. the trailer's really good. You're right, yeah. It was one of my favourite trailers last year. I remember you saying, yeah. And the two directors, uh, Colton Wilmire, did a film in 2014 called Starry Eyes. Mm-hmm. That's really solid if you get a chance to check okay. it out. Okay, yep. That's, uh, yeah, that's how I'd like cool. to finish. No worries. <laughs> There's a better finish than uh, the film. Mm. But sometimes, that is better. And now we're on to the top five. Uh, and keeping in with the theme of our podcast, which has oh, really all been about pets this time, uh, we've gone for the top five movie pets uh, in cinema. And Simon. All right. Well, being me, of course, I've had to make all my picks horror pets. <laughs> so I've spoken before about Zoltan, Hound of Dracula. But I really wanted to return to the cursed canine cult. Well, one more time to address Devil Dog, Hound of Hell. Also from 1978, so it must have been a real year, as we were saying, for, um, you know, demonic dogs. Yeah. Um, the main reason I, I had to do this is because I'd only, I only really had half full memories of watching Devil Dog on TV <laughs> as a kid. Or really one standout memory, Richard Krenner fixing his lawnmower when the blades kick to life and the Devil Dog, uh, just a, a German shepherd, mm-hmm. regular German shepherd, Mentally compelling Krenner to stick his hand in the blades, which Krenner, through much draining of his facial muscles, manages barely to overcome. <laughs> I was kind of haunted by that one memory of, you know? Wow. So I had to go back and find it. And luckily for me, there are a couple of copies of this made for TV shocker on YouTube. One looks like it was recreated in Minecraft and then filmed off a TV with a stocking stretch over the screen. But the other one, which I'll link to in, in the show notes, was actually pretty decent. And the film itself is kind of a preposterous good time as well. It opens with Hammer and Bond fave Martine Beswick and her clearly demonic cohorts buying a sweet little doggo, which is then forced to breed with a summoned hellhound. Uh, being this is a made-for-TV movie, this scene and many that follow yeah. largely happen off-screen, obviously, <laughs> uh, so that they can send the litter of demonic puppies out into the world for largely poorly explained reasons. Like, I don't know what their end game is. Right. Um, anyway, one of the pups ends up with Krenner and his family, which includes the kids who played the brother and sister in Escape to Witch Mountain. Right. Um, and, and apparently they'd played brother and sister in like four different films. Is that right? Yeah, it's really crazy. Um, once more playing siblings who fall under the spell of the satanic pooch. The dog itself, named Lucky, I mean, Lucky, <laughs> never does anything aggressive. It just stares at people with its big, stupid tongue lolling out and its innocent puppy eyes. Sometimes augmented with like a little green graphic over the top of them, right. you know, to make it creepy. And so it falls on the victims to look terrified like the family's poor maid. Uh, naturally, um, like all maids, named Maria, <laughs> who is burnt to death off screen yeah. um, as it happens. And then promptly forgotten about and never mentioned again. <laughs> poor Maria. The dog is never, ever convincingly scary or demonic, except for the brief shots where it morphs into a completely different dog wearing plastic horns and what could be a black feather boa and, and back projected it on the background. Um, and then it's really just mostly silly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> up until now, it hasn't been. Yeah, up until now, it's been pretty <laughs> hardcore. But I did like the Rosemary's, ba- uh, Rosemary's puppy-like way the plot dwells on Krenner as his family fall under the sway of the devil dog. First, his kids turn into right assholes. And then he returns home to find his Sally homemaker wife seductively smoking a cigarette before throwing off a lacy nightgown and diving naked into the neighbor's pool. Uh, which you guessed it, off screen. <laughs> you know in these sort of films, if your wife is suddenly acting like a sex bot, then Satan has her under his spell. And so it's up to Krenner to find a way to exercise his dog. Not in the walkies around the block sort of way either. <laughs> but as silly as all the sounds, I enjoy Devil Dog. 
Krenner sells this ridiculous story hard out. And the scenes of his family turning into jerks is actually kind of fun. Um, it's not really very scary, but it moves quickly in that lawnmower st- scene. Man, it still works, eh? Oh, man. I've got to check this out. Well, it's on YouTube, man. That's great. I just imagine Richard Krenner doing his uh, William Shatner impression when he's talking. It, yeah, it's kind of like that. This dog is trying to make me yeah. kill myself. But just the way he sweats <laughs> and strains when he's trying not to stick his hand in the lawnmower blades. <laughs> And just the dog staring at him just with its tongue panting, you know, innocently. Acting tour de force from both Krenner and the dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Krenner wins, but I mean, there's not much in it. <laughs> so, Duncan, what's your first pick? Uh, my first pick, um, well, I mean, it's kind of horror-ish. So, <laughs> do pets get any cuter than Gizmo from Gremlins? No. And do they get any more dangerous? Well, apparently they do. Uh <laughs> There's no, there's no Zoltan, that's for sure. <laughs> Gizmo is a fantastic creation, both the saviour and cause of the destruction that is unleashed on small-town America when he is watered and fed after midnight. I know it might sound like a cliché for a film set at Christmas aimed at children, but the cute pet's evil offspring emerge from his abdomen like disturbing furballs in a moment of painful body horror. Gizmo is more than a soft toy voiced by an America's Got Talent judge. Uh, that's Howie Mandel apparently does the voice. Oh, wow. Um, he's also a resourceful fighter who is prepared to protect his witless human companion by committing mass infanticide. Uh, Gizmo's homicidal behavior ramps up in the second film with even more whimsy as he dresses up as Rambo and cuts down a Nakatomi-sized building worth of his parasitic offspring. Uh, (laughs) but, um, I always remember watching this film. I went to the movies to see this and I always remember that part where he's like, and spasms of pain and shooting out these furballs out of his yeah, body, yeah, uh, and just being really disturbed by that. Back in the day, when you know you could put creatures into blenders in kids' films, yeah, totally. And tell <laughs> horrendous stories about yeah. parents dying in chimneys. Yeah, yeah. I was just like a ten-year-old. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah, this is the same to you, right? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, imagine that now. This is. I actually thought about doing this one as well, so I'm glad you did it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems like an obvious one um, because the whole kind of theme is, of it is, well, if you can't look after your pets, eh, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also, a lot of the human people here are, are idiots, you know. And, yeah. Um, mm. <laughs> kids film. Great Christmas movie. Uh, it's fantastic. All right, I've spoken about this before, off mic, I think, probably, but I'm a fan of the heroic doggy beast from The Hills Have Eyes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Wes Craven version, of course. I haven't seen the remake. Not only is Beast the rare fright flick animal that's a horror hero, not a villain, but he gets to save the day and returns for a sequel. In fact, he's one of the only returning characters from the first film, which is a bit, bit weird since it takes place seven years after the original. I mean, it just seems somewhat implausible that a group of characters should head off into the same mutant-infested wasteland as the victims of the first movie, only to run into the same murderous clan of cannibal killers, and, and that they should somehow be accompanied by the original group's dog who naturally is played by a different dog, who looks like a different dog. But really, Beast is on this list for one reason, and one reason only. Sure, he's a canine badass, and that's pretty cool. But what makes Beast special is that he is perhaps the first dog in the history of cinema to get his own flashback. (laughs) Because Hills Have Eyes Part 2 is a rotten, cheap hack job of a film. It's also filthy with flashbacks to the genuinely effective original. But only a director of the status of Wes Craven would have the balls to let one of these flashbacks come from one of the only characters who actually remembers the events of the first film, Beast the German Shepherd. Like Lucky from the previously mentioned Devil Dog, Beast's performance is a little lacklustre. 
Uh, we get a slow push on a beast, all empty eyes and rolling tongue before the image gets all wavy. And we find ourselves back in the original film. We're a living beast on a tear, ripping into poor Michael Berryman. It's the worst, and also, because of that, the best part of The Hills of Ice Part 2. And to this day, the only thing I remember clearly about the film at all. Um, it's incredible. I always remember this film because of you telling me about the dog flashback oh, years that's, ago. That's the best. Uh, you've brought this up before. I, I don't know if we've brought it up on mic before, but you've definitely <laughs> talked to me about it a while ago. And yeah, it always sticks in my it sticks in my mind. Is yeah. the pet flashbacks genius? Like sold as a in a serious yeah you know horror basically. Back in the day, eh, though those films like if you did a sequel to another film, you had a good ten minutes of flashbacks because yeah. it's so cheap, eh? Yeah. You know, and there are, I think, three different flashback sequences in this film. Yeah. You know, so every character who comes back gets their own flashback. Yeah. We should do a top five flashbacks at some point, I think. eh? Yeah. Like good flashbacks? (laughs) No, just (laughs) top five memorable flashbacks. Because I always remember the one from Jaws of Revenge, right? Right. Which has uh, Aaron Gray. Is it the shark having a flashback? No, it's Aaron Gray having a flashback. Wish it was the shark having a flashback. I know. That would be the best. Yeah. Uh, But no, she has a flashback to... The end of the first one, right? Which obviously she wasn't at. Yeah. Oh, that's that's cool. <laughs> so you get to see the you know smiley son of a bitch. Yeah. Um, and she's flashing back to that, and you're like, how do you did did Brody come home and say, hey, honey, guess what I said before I killed that? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> There's this. Um, we're getting off topic a bit, but what? What the hell? There's this film uh, from the '40s called Captive Wild Woman, which had a sequel, I think, called Jungle Woman. Um, there's three films in the series, and they all just rotate those words around. If you know what I mean, right? So the next one's probably Wild Captive Jungle Woman. <laughs> I don't know, but the second one, full twenty minutes, of the opening is flashbacks to the first film. Mm-hmm. But the first film was made from a lot of leftover footage from a previous film, like unrelated. Like they had all this. Um, um, circus stuff of um, a lion tamer. It's horrible stuff by today's standards because mm. you'll find it up, genuinely upsetting to watch, you know. Mm. But that's a big part of the first film, and they, right. they they just found an actor who looked a bit like the trainer to. And so, I'm spending 20 minutes of the film realizing watching flashbacks to another film with footage stolen from another film entirely. <laughs> it's like so le- so many levels deep, eh? Yeah, you know, I'm just I'm yeah I'm, yeah exactly. <laughs> I'm so far down. Ah, it's incredible. You don't know what reality is anymore. Yeah, I've completely lost. And I'm sure that in the final film, I'm sure they had flashbacks to all of that as well. Just completing that whole rotten circle. Yeah. You were just having a dream of you watching this Blu-ray. Yeah, I can't. I've watched that entire trilogy. I think I'm the only person on the planet who has. (laughs) Well, uh, my next one is not a horror film, but um, in some ways it is kind of horrifying. It is a favourite of mine. And and I went for this because it's one of my favourite movie pets. Yeah. so, Umberto D is a bleak film. Uh, it erodes its lead character's dignity down to nearly nothing, and optimism goes with it. And yet, my favourite Italian director, Vittorio De Sica, offers us a glimpse of warmth in the form of a dog. Flyke is a loving, loyal companion, but it is what he represents that makes him the ultimate pet. Flyke is Umberto's only respite from a society rapidly shutting him out. When Umberto spirals into poverty... There's a heartbreaking sequence of events where Umberto loses Flyke, then regains him, and eventually realises that the dog may be better off without him. He tries to coax Flyke into playing with kids on a playground, who he hopes will adopt the dog while he kind of like wanders off. But Flyke is having none of it, coming bounding after his master. Eventually, Umberto tries to throw himself in front of a train, and it is Flyke who refuses to allow his master to 
who succumbed to despair. Flack is the only optimistic or even altruistic character in the film. The humans are either beaten down by society or doing the beating down themselves, so I was left to Flack to be man's best friend and the audience's. Oh, my, my goodness. That ending. Um, yeah. But this whole film, and like you say, Flake is... Flake! Flake is such a wonderful character. Um, yeah. I adored this film. I think you convinced me to watch it. And yeah. I'm so glad you did. Yeah, this was... Uh, pretty early on, this is one of the ones that I really um, got me massively into Italian neorealist cinema. I'd, I'd studied it before, but I don't think I'd ever truly connected with it, even right. though I'd seen Bicycle Thieves and and um, you know a few other films uh, earlier. I think this was the first film where I was really just, wow, you know. And, and I think the thing is that it's easy to look at, like, in the film and go, it's a sentimental addition to a film. But really, it's the only relief in that film. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, it, it, it's kind of funny to kind of go, ah, oh, it's a sentimental dog. And it's like, yeah, but look at the film it's involved in. It's like, it's a despairing film about society and ageing. You know? Totally. And I don't think it f- you finish that film on and up either (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean because you know that there's another tomorrow and another day of hard scrabble ahead and you know yeah and it's one of these films that really got kind of like raked over the coals by the by the powers that be you know like a lot of italian um people in 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 positions of power criticized it and said you should boycott this film because it's showing the worst of, of our society um, which is saying something, seeing as it's you know, three years after they got rid of Mussolini. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Just showing the worst parts of our society. Yeah, ah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's some of that there, right? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but but Flight's magnificent, and uh, if anyone's seen the artist, uh, the dog, and that, I'm sure there's a little bit of yeah um, tie in there. Certainly, that's what I felt. Yeah, yeah, artist. me too. In, in a positive way. Yeah, you know. But yeah, fantastic. And who's your last pet? All right. So far, I've talked about a horror pet hero. And a horror pet villain, which means it's time to talk about a horror pet victim who becomes a villain. Anyway, I'll get to that. I'm talking about Rufus the Cat from one of the horror greats, for me anyway, uh, 1985's Reanimator. Rufus has only one scene. Well, one scene where he's played by an actual feline. After that, the poor puss is killed off screen, supposedly accidentally, but we never really discover, before being discovered and reanimated by deliriously mad scientist Herbert West, played by horror stalwart Jeffrey Coombs. Tragically, Rufus isn't looking too hot. As Wes puts it, don't expect it to tango. It's got a broken back. Um, He might not be able to tango, but Rufus, or puppet Rufus, can put up a hell of a fight, transforming into a stuffed cat puppet that attacks West and his roommate Dan. Now, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I'm a big fan of films where actors fight off a monster that they're clearly having to control themselves. I just think that's enormously entertaining. (laughs) You know, when someone's having to hold a, a stuffed cat model to their throat and run around a room banging into things. Yeah. Oh, it gets me every time. If they, if they should have their own category at the Academy Oh, it, it if, if I had any say. <laughs> and Combs puts on a masterclass in the art, flinging himself around with gusto before Dan coolly grabs Rufus, throws him at a wall where he dies with a bloody splat. I love that moment as well. Yeah. It's just so quick. Uh, it's a great, shocking, silly scene. Shocky and funny and overawed in all the really best ways. Yeah. Funnily enough, it's not even the most disturbing part of that film. So oh, it's totally cool. not. <laughs> I remember the last time I had a screening of this. It was um that, that Lopdale House screening. Mm. Um, and I can remember getting near the end of that film and just hearing somebody go, oh, no. <laughs> when, they, when they could see what was coming. Yeah. Like, oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that is what's going to happen. Um, yeah. The disturbing cries of the first people to see, the, you know, these horror films you present them. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. always entertaining. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that's always one of my was always one of my favorite parts of the horror movie nights that you ran, was 
especially after a couple, I realized, oh, you're picking these intentionally. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what was interesting was if it was a film I wasn't aware of. Yeah. It wasn't immediately apparent why, you know, like something like How Sue that we've talked about. Before. Yeah, you, yeah. I, I watched that, and within the first few frames, I realized. You know oh, what you're getting I know, into. I know what I'm, and I, yeah, and I know yeah, why yeah. you've picked this because I sure. know, you know, hey, it's this is going to be crazy ride, and yeah. you know, it's artistic and it's striking. Yeah. Sometimes you'll put on a film and I'll go, okay, this is pretty ordinary. Yeah, and that yeah. Actually, did makes me more disturbed. Because I know that I'm, I'm in for it. There's going to be there's like, something. Something's going to happen. Something eh? horrific is going to be. Yeah. I'm kind of like, man, there's not much to recommend this so far in the first 15, 20 minutes of this film. So there's going to be something really disturbing coming up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 If I've done my job properly. Yeah. 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 But you know, like, I mean, if you've chosen like Frankenhooker, then you know, it only takes the first kind of couple of minutes of that to kind of go. Oh yeah, I get why that. Oh, good. totally. You know, I mean, it's still you still have to get through to the exploding hooker scene. But yeah, yeah, you got to get through the exploding hooker scene. But at least I'm prepared for that because you've opened with you know yeah, like kind of the title alone. Yeah, the title alone, but also lawnmower trauma and that kind of stuff. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but something like burial ground. You're right. You're 20 yeah. minutes into that, thinking, man, this is not going anywhere. Yeah. So uh, if you ever come along to a film that Simon puts on, you know that there's going to be a reason for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably going to be so. well outside your comfort zone. Mm. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Right, so that was uh, May. Yeah. Um, Duncan, what was your favourite film this month? Uh, my favourite film was Us. Yep, that would be my favourite film. Um, fair, fair call. It's a film that sticks in your mind and you continue to decode and interpret symbols long after you've seen it. Really looking forward to whatever Peel does next. And I recommend everyone checking it out. I just want to have a quick um, mention of another film I watched, which was... Uh, the documentary on Whitney Houston by Kevin McDonald uh, okay. called Whitney. So Kevin McDonald, who did uh, One Day in September and um, all of those things, right. um, really, really dark film. Yeah, like, really dark. Yeah, but but riveting. Yeah, and uh, obviously I'm not uh, Whitney Houston fan, but it's not really about that. But the yeah. way it's this is told, not the film I expected you to be talking about. No, but the way it's told, he has this, he has this great opening where. He just shows you one of her one of her big songs from the eighties, yeah. and it's all the kind of MTV day glow, beautiful, yeah. and then it just suddenly gets interrupted, but with flash frames of what was going on in the world at that time. Right. So you know, it's like uh, you know, I want to dance with somebody. What if she's singing? And then it'll suddenly get interrupted with you know things going on in Panama or yeah. you know drug wars and yeah. Reagan and you know um, you know Chernobyl and all this kind of stuff. So it's really fascinating, and that kind of is a perfect visual representation of where the film's going to take you. Yeah. There's this facade and then kind of slowly revealing to you sure. her life and, and, and what went wrong. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a pretty harrowing watch actually, to be honest, but it's pretty powerful too. Yeah. Uh, and very good because, uh, they actually talk to her, her mom, mm. you know, her horrible, uh, ex-husband, Bobby Brown, yeah. you know, it's his prerogative, but you know, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is, you know, a uh, real, is that right? Work. Yeah, real piece of work. I know virtually nothing about him except I had a friend at high school who thought he was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, get them to watch this film <laughs> and they will not think he's awesome. I'm sure he doesn't think so anymore. No, no. That was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But um, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one to check out. But but um, having said all of that, even though I, I, I don't know if enjoyed the right word, but uh, definitely was glued to the TV for, for Whitney, um, Us was the film definitely right. to go and check out. I yep. just thought that was um, really, really good. What about you? Yeah, look, uh, uh, Us was great. Uh, it's a tough one this month. It's probably, I'm going to say Lady Bird, which I finally got around right, to seeing. Yep. Yeah, a real delight of it coming 
coming of age drama that avoids easy cliches and takes risks on characters behaving in realistic, often unlikable ways, which I, which I really appreciated. The mother-daughter relationship between uh, Saoirse Ronan and Laura Metcalf is wonderful as well. It's mm. you know difficult and problematic and you know loving yeah. at the same time. That's right. Really enjoyed it. But I also discovered The Vampire's Ghost this month. Oh. Um, and look, it's not a great, great film or anything. I can't, I won't lie to you. But it was a fun discovery, a horror flick from Cheapo Studio Republic Pictures. Uh, from 1945. So they're best known for their westerns. Uh, I appreciated what they were going for here was a Luton-era RKO feel, you know? Not a Monster Mash Universal sort of vibe. Right. Uh, it certainly feels a little like I Walk With a Zombie and it's got that kind of African setting as well, which mm. helps. And that's no bad thing. And also you can watch it on YouTube, so that's a bonus. Excellent. You know? Uh, it was co-written by the great Lee Brackett. It's her first film in a career that would span 35 years and would include... Uh, the Big Sleep, Rio Bravo, and The Long Goodbye, uh, before her last credit, The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Yeah. A film she wrote the first draft of before she passed away, proving, I guess, that I can get to Star Wars from, from virtually any starting point. <laughs> it's really impressive. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well done. <laughs> and so, um, Duncan, what song are we going out to? We could really only go out to one song, couldn't yeah, we? Yeah, pretty much. And that was the cover of Pet Cemetery. Uh, this one done by a band called who I've never heard of called Starcrawler. Yeah. Relatively faithful cover of the Ramones classic from 1989, Pet Cemetery. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so enjoy. Uh, I don't want to be buried in the Pet Cemetery. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you.